This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is part one of a Spin Doctors special as I'm joined by three people who've come out into the light from the shadows to explain how and why they practice the dark arts. Joe Tanner worked on two Boris Johnson mayoral campaigns before setting up in-house PR with Katie Perrier, who joined us on last year's Spin Doctor special and is now Number 10's Director of Communications. Stuart Wood, Lord Wood of Anfield, spent a decade advising Gordon Brown before running Ed Miliband's leadership campaign and serving on his front bench. And James Holt spent seven years spinning for the Lib Dems, including as Head of Government Communications for Nick Clegg in the Coalition. We'll be asking whether a backlash against spin has led to the rise of Trump and Brexit. Is Twitter a help or a hindrance for today's politicians and how do you save your boss from a leadership crisis first though this week's podcast is dedicated to polly who posted a review on itunes saying she'd quit working for a tory mp after the eu referendum and shut herself off from the news the red box podcast she said helped ease her back into politics sort of like therapy so uh, we're happy to help and if you want uh, the podcast dedicated to you post a review on itunes and of course uh, you can sign up to my morning email briefing at the times.co.uk forward slash red box now though welcome joe uh, stewart and james when um, i tweeted before we started recording to say that we were doing another one of our spin doctor specials and i asked what a collective noun um, of a spin doctor was last year we settled on it being a denial of spin doctors later MP Neil Coyle suggested a world of spin doctors. Uh, Tom Peck from The Independent said a background of spin doctors. Mm. Uh, a squabble, a chutzpah was one. Uh, jo- John Moss opted for a tucker in honour of the thick of its Malcolm Tucker, um, although we can't repeat anything that Malcolm Tucker ever said. Have you got any suggestions? What are we going to settle on? It's like a kind of cluster beep of spin doctors. That's a, that's a, that's a That's a... Uh, can we top that? I don't think we could top that, could we? Well, I always thought it was a huddle, but then that was what we were always stuck in the middle of, rather yeah. than uh, the huddle. The huddle surrounds the uh, the the cluster of. Uh, of I, call uh, it a, I call it a demo in honour of my friend Damien McBride. A, a demo, the, of, the king of them all. The king of them all. I call it demo. Well, the comeback king of spin dance is now king. back, exactly, um, in the midst of uh, Team Corbyn. Right, let's um, let's press on. And uh, Stuart, you kick us off with um, what are the, what could be one of the downsides of the culture of spin. Populism is on the march across the West and the political class is baffled. Little wonder when the rush to the centre meant the backgrounds, the worldviews and the character of party elites began to converge. Throw into the mix a backlash against soundbites and media management and it's no wonder that voters have said they've had enough. So I think this is really interesting. One of the things that hasn't been touched on it as much, I don't think, 
uh, in the sort of dissection of Brexit. It's just the attitude towards the political class and the way that on paper into people like us, we all said the Remain campaign, they had all the celebrities, they had all the photo ops and the messaging and everything else. And yet it just didn't work. And it does feel like whether it's Brexit or Donald Trump, there is this backlash yeah. against the stage-managed soundbite. I mean, I guess the stuff that's been discussed most is how politicians look like they've all got plums in their mouth, wear the same suits as corporate people in the city. And that's I'm sure that's a huge part of it. But I think there's also an issue about the substance of politics that the centre-left and the centre-right under Tory and Labour governments have pursued. I mean, for the last 20, 25 years, we've had... Of course, Cameron, Blair, Brown, Ed Miliband didn't agree on everything. That's ridiculous. But they all did agree on some fundamentals. They agreed that globalisation was just a very good thing that had to be welcomed. And anyone who complained about it basically just had to wake up and smell the coffee. They reduced politics to a kind of economic transaction where the only thing that really mattered was public spending or tax. And things outside of economics in politics were sort of marginalised and felt not to be the things that mattered most. Chuck that in with the fact that the policy space between the main parties narrowed significantly. They, you know, there was a huge amount of agreement between a Blairite and a Cameroon on lots of the fundamentals of things. And I think it's not really much, much, much of a wonder, really, that people decided to react against a whole lot of them in some way. So it's partly the character of politics and partly the substance of politics, I think, that people are reacting against. How much of that do you think was because it, general elections, all the focus ended up being on a small number of m- marginal seats and a small number of swing voters in those seats. So everything was sort of messaged at them. And what we saw in the Brexit referendum was actually everybody's vote counted the same. So in places where, who had felt neglected or taken for granted. They- yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a significant part of it. There's a problem not just in our country, but in lots of countries. But I think also the currency of politics for a long time has essentially been who can manage the economy better. And the measure of who can manage the economy better is whether you're going to have more growth, more jobs and politics kind of boils down to that. And in the last 15, 20 years, things other than that have surged through. By the way, one of the things that surged through is that people just don't believe these headline figures anymore, right? <laughs> I mean, high levels of growth and high levels of unemployment for a long time have coexisted with the majority of families actually getting worse off. So no wonder they look at these figures and stick two fingers up at them, right? It's just, it's so the economics, detached. Yeah, so the yeah. economics itself is it's fragmented, but there's things beyond the economics of life that have come through. And I think as a whole, the political class, myself, included we've all been very slow to pick up on the importance of these things and still you see people trying to reduce everything back into the pound in your pocket oh they say they care about immigration what they really care about is how much money they've got and i just think we've got to bust away from this view about politics if we're going to match where people are it's another way of it's also saying um anti-establishment versus establishment it's just another factor as part of of part of all of this this debate i think that over the years us in the profession that we've been in got very good at presenting people in a very uh, sort of very specific way that we wanted the rest of the world to to see and i think as part of that ongoing trend in politics that has also been a bit of a rejection but people also assume i think there's now a, an underlying acceptance that certain people who are not establishment politicians in inverted commas they're not those then they accept a little bit of going rogue and they accept a certain element and when i remember whenever we were doing uh, that period where we were doing nick clegg versus nigel farage stuff everyone expected every single thing to come out of nick's mouth to be 100 percent perfect because that's how we'd 
spent time presenting him. And every time that there was something incorrect or crazy coming out of Nigel Farage's mouth, no one really cared. It's all about what so, set the bar, isn't it? Totally. <laughs> it's about level of expectation. But also there was something interesting about the way that for the Lib Dems to become part of that conversation, particularly in before the 2010 election, it meant presenting Nick Clegg as looking and talking like one of the centrist robots from the other parties. We had to spend a lot of time saying this man is able to be Prime Minister and part of that was also then presenting him in a way that was along the same lines that we had seen many other successful politicians previously. So do you think what's happened is it at that point that was because people thought that's what politicians should look like and sort like or whatever and actually you know we've just we're in another phase now and it Times have changed. A bit, but then at the same time, we had all the kind of isms were presented at people that, you know, if you spoke out, you were an ism, you were race, you, it was a racism issue, it was a sexism issue. And this, you know, you had a few breakout politicians, so such as Farage, who would say things that were considered to be either unsavoury, unpopular or whatever. But there's an element where somebody just breaks through and speaks in a slightly different way and you do stand out. You don't really have to be that controversial, but just because everyone else is so effectively anodyne, you can stand out very easily, which means that then these people start to, you know, take on a life of their own and suddenly then a traditional politician is sort of torn between do I go more in the Farage route or do I go more, do I stick to what I'm being told or what I know? And presumably you've all been in the room with your political masters where they've said, why can't I just say what I actually think? And your no, job I, sometimes... I've never had that with Boris. <laughs> Boris just said what he I mean, we did... We, we, did, we, we had a few, com- more, Boris, we had a really few conversations where we said, you know, really? And then he would stand up in a room and say, uh, so my spin doctors at the back of the room won't like this, but... And then he started presenting a policy that we'd literally just been discussing whether we could cost and he would just decide to present it to the room because it was so exciting. And you'd all sort of, you know, smack your forehead and wonder which near wall you could bash into (laughs) but you know there are some people that just have a very clear way of deciding how they want to present things and you don't you can't do that conversation to be quite honest I mean we when I worked for Ed Miliband we we got tormented as a team by the dilemma between saying what you think and and looking at the focus groups and the evidence from polling telling you you'd be mad to do it and in a way that's the worst of all worlds when because I think voters can smell it when you let's be honest the immigration mug's a classic example of that right what was damaging about that was not necessarily this is the Labour mug the Labour mug that we had a series of Labour mugs with our campaign pledges and almost automatically one of them reeled off campaign pledge number four which was on limits on immigration and it looked like we were trying to make a virtue of the position on immigration which people just didn't think resonated with Ed's character and his views of the world and the, the damaging thing about that wasn't really whether what your position was in immigration it was the mismatch between what you looked like you wanted to say mm. and the person inside so contrast that with one of ed's best moments which again was nothing to do with policy it goes back to your point nothing to do with economics or policy which was when he got genuinely angry about the daily mail having a go at his dad and he just decided we decided but he was leading it i'm just going to stand up as a son and say this is out of order and authenticity people tear themselves up in politics about how to be authentic right it, <laughs> if, 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 if being authentic should be a natural thing or else yeah, you're not yeah. being authentic and sometimes it's not being a Farage or a automaton it's just being yourself in a way that no focus group or poll could predict would work but it but it resonates because people can can smell it and actually the referendum campaign probably freed up a lot of people to talk in 
language and in ways that they hadn't done before because it was more of an individual position that you took as a politician. Yeah. I mean, I find the irony now is how many politicians pipe up on telly saying that they know why people voted for Brexit. I'm like, well, you didn't know before. <laughs> how do you suddenly know now? I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are families with people over the dining room table who still don't know why each other voted the way they did. I find it really hard to, that politicians suddenly are very clear on yeah. the reasons. I think there is always there is a bit of a danger that the the move towards authenticity or the desire for authenticity also becomes a bit of a by byword now for I'm allowed to be a little bit offensive, and <laughs> yeah, so yeah. there is a there is a sort of danger that we can we can trip into that, and I think that we need to be wary of that. Yeah. But there is there it is that authenticity that people have responded to. And interestingly, in the in the 2015 Labour leadership contest. Jeremy Corbyn was the only one who had authenticity, and particularly up against Andy Burnham and Yvette Cooper, who were the best one in the world, the, the sort of prime example of the I can't make my mind up, I'll try and focus group and hedge everything, triangulate on every single question. And so Corbyn did at that point, he did have authenticity, but it's only he's sort of authentically hopeless now it but turns actually out the system doesn't allow you to be authentic because then you actually you can have views about the queen but then what happens when you actually have to you know step over the threshold you know, all these things suddenly your, your authenticity becomes a barrier to yeah. the job yeah true so Stuart when there were things like when when gordon went into number 10 and we had these the the, the phrase not flash just gordon yeah. this was going to be his thing good phrase it was a very good phrase and it sort of lasted for a bit yeah and then How it long? didn't what then it, it sort of he sort of drifted into sort of what appeared to be, you know, relaunches and yeah. and all that sort of thing. What what's going on in that situation where you you've decided on one line of attack and that's not working, and then you sort of s- s- start well, that's interesting because when we arrived at number ten, we had a very Gordon Brownish, you know, eighty page list of policy announcements we wanted to do, and we were going to take the world by storm. And actually, the terrorist attack happened quickly blue tongue, foot and mouth happened. And it turned out, who knew? It turned out Gordon was actually really good, partly in the post-Blair era of just being a hard-working, straightforward, not flash, just Gordon Prime Minister. And I remember walking to his office at the end of August 2007 with a poll, like 10-minute advance notice of a poll that showed he was 11 points ahead. And he looked at it and said, doesn't mean anything, doesn't mean anything at all. He was, he was always very clear-eyed that the honeymoon was just a, a kind of you're not Blair little bubble, if you, if, if you see what I mean. I think basically he couldn't decide whether he wanted to be a continuation of Blair or a break from Blair. And that that was one of the problems with this strategy. And then events happened and events sort of consumed everything else. So, um, I, I, so with someone like Gordon, it's very difficult to have a, a sort of media management approach because in a funny way, he's incredibly authentic. No matter what strategy you have, the, the real Gordon just sort of came through. People around him used to say that, you know, no matter how many times he straightened his tie, within 10 seconds on stage, it would look as though he'd been right you know, wrestling with it for the previous three hours. So there was a sort of straightforwardness about it that made it very difficult to manage his, his, his image. But also, at its best in those four months, it came through. And again, during the economic crisis, I think, it just sort of shone through. So, Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. It's a mixed blessing, really. And then when people told him to smile... Yeah, that that didn't come across very authentic. No, I think that's fair to say. I think that wasn't that wasn't when he was at his strongest. I mean, another example is there was a there was a, there was a moment when the Lisbon Treaty, a famous European Union treaty, had to be signed, and um, Gordon wanted to show that he was sort of sceptical about it, but also wanted to be signing it. So we ended up arriving late, and it was considered to be like the worst of all worlds again. And that's that's a, you know we we basically the last people to sign it as the as the coffee was being cleared away on the table and. I mean, that's another example there, I think, where you can overthink things which actually have almost no importance to the electorate, but and you wrestle with by, your authenticity a bit too much. By overthinking it and it becoming a thing, that probably resonated more than if you just turned up and exactly. gone with the flow and, and all that. And, exactly. and to what extent, Joe, do you think that um, we've seen this in America as well? Because Hillary Clinton, I mean, American politics is even more controlled and soundbite-driven and all of that than, than ours. And Hillary Clinton is sort of the ultimate, you know, career politician and creature of that machine and Donald Trump is just such a rejection of all of that. And that's part of the problem isn't it is if you're both in a similar approach you kind of you can fight the sort of beige with beige but when you come up with the kind of character that is Trump and then you're trying to present this kind of very soundbitey driven approach you it just shows it up even more because the extremes are kind of therefore very clear for everyone to see um and, you know, the fact is we've all worked in this industry and, you know, the so-called stage management of stuff, you know, the classics of things going wrong of, you know, photo ops and, you know, the clothes not being right, the the hair not being right, the, the assumptions that are made about <laughs> the these different things. The hair not being things. right is a given, though, presumably, if you're out with bots. That's <clears> well, just... the problem was, I mean, I'd have, I would, you know, do a great job of, of straightening a tie and smoothing the hair and literally just as he would go on stage, I'd see him ruffle it and it's a thing he does. Isn't and he it's a designer ruffle? Isn't that part of who he is? Well, I, I, you know, that's what he, that's his trademark and it's, I don't know if it's part of his thought process. It's yeah. the same way he would go to a dinner and would write his speech on a bit of um, on a, a napkin and I'd be thinking how are we doing this I don't get it but there's you know there's that element that some people are just individuals and it can work and there are some people that are individuals and it doesn't quite work and you've touched on Donald Trump there Joe. so Joe Tanner talk us through uh, what you think might be the problem with social media Twitter might have helped Donald Trump to get elected, but a politician on social media is now playing a risky game. Journalists used to have to dig around old university papers to find controversial views or something embarrassing. Today it takes just a few clicks to unearth someone's digital past. Will Twitter be more effective at killing off political careers in the future than good old-fashioned journalism? Great. Well, if, this, if we couldn't disappear even more into the Westminster bubble, talking about Twitter should just about finish us <laughs> off. Do you think, Joe, that, that Twitter played a big role in Donald Trump? Uh, getting elected. I mean, he's sort of a one-man... He doesn't really need PR advisors or one-man PR machine. <laughs> I think he does need PR advice. It's just that he doesn't necessarily <laughs> listen to it. Um, I think it did, but I think it's a... You know, Twitter now, actually, is... It's not just about what you say on it in terms of your opinions, but the other the other thing that's making of politicians now is actually how you handle the difficulties. You look at someone like Ruth Davidson in Scotland, who's really done a great job of this tackling head-on the kind of abuse and the the 
pretty nasty side of politics, actually. Um, whereas Donald Trump's kind of used it to broadcast and demonstrate that everything we probably thought about him is probably quite true <laughs> because you can't do anything about that. You know, I can imagine he's probably sat in bed with his phone and just thinks I'll rattle that off. And that's quite a, you know, scary thing actually to work with someone like that. You know, you would go to bed and wake up in the morning and realise something would happen. Whereas traditionally we would do our jobs and, you know, would probably pack off the person you're working with and, you know, they're safely indoors and, you know, they're not going to pick up their phone. They know to call you if someone rings. But actually you've now found they've been sat on Twitter and broadcasting themselves, which is just... It's not, it's not just journalists, but it's every person working at the White House has now got a Twitter notification on their phone to ping every time he... Um... Fires another I'm amazed anyone gets any sleep, to be honest. The phones are probably going <laughs> off all the time. But but that is a genuine, you know, a genuine problem now that we had this with advisors here that had said things about Trump. You know, traditionally it would be you'd, you'd have a little line somewhere buried in some, you know, thesis that was written by a politician when they were 20 and, you know, spotty at university. But now it could be something they said six months ago about, you know, world events that suddenly comes back and bites them because of the new job they've got or the new focus that the world's got. It's a totally different world we're operating in. And we're seeing this at the moment that Gareth Snell, the Labour candidate in Stoke-on-Trent Central who um, whose Twitter account was picked over immediately when everyone discovered that he was a quite enthusiastic Remainer in a very pro-leave area. But now we've had more and more and more stuff which has been dug out from his past. Um, why why does the party not have someone that says delete your accounts before or clear your... I don't know how you but do But also this, due but... diligence to even get to the stage of being the candidate without having a look at one of the most publicly yeah. available histories of their thoughts on things. I mean, that's the first thing you'd go and look at. I mean, I would do that if I'm interviewing someone for a job because they're going to be representing my company. I'd think about Facebook and whatever else. I mean, we, you know, we've got adverts talking to kids about doing this stuff. But what sort of example of politician setting... I think also that there is a volume issue to a certain extent where we are probably in a period where we're seeing a tipping point. And I do think at some point it's just going to become, it's happening to everyone and therefore people are going to care less about it. And the shocking elements of things that were said five years ago compared to the volume of it, what's happening at the moment is is just completely incomparable. And I think that because, especially the generation uh possibly the generation below me, maybe, um, that have lived their entire lives online. The idea that you could have got through life with a completely clean Facebook history and a completely clean Twitter account, Instagram feed, whatever it may be, that there will be countless images and phrases and things like that that just, you know, I can't, I can't even imagine what has, uh, has been on my feeds over the years if I had a very public forum at university and all the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> but there is an element where yeah. you know, you're not going to find a candidate that is has a completely... And if they do, then I remark that they're probably rather <laughs> well. Dull. Maybe maybe this is this also points to the sort of authenticity, and it, it, it's something that we journalists get very wound up about. You know how embarrassing this is for X candidate or Y candidate, but maybe normal people using Twitter and Facebook just shrug and say, "Well, I've put far worse on there." And it's it depends what you're saying, though, yeah, doesn't it? Not, I mean, if you're yeah. just being foul, then to be honest, you have no place in yeah. in public life. But there's a difference between having some views on an issue and you know ranting about your football team or whatever, which is quite authentic. And I can remember working with Damien Green and him going on to. Radio 5 Live and them having a whole conversation just before his segment about Reading Football Club and he was a massive Reading fan and he kind of got into the conversation and it was probably sort of the best five minutes I'd heard him do when I was working with him because he actually was really he was far more passionate about that than he was about the education 
thing that he was happened to be talking about while in opposition because it was a you know it was talking on a human level about stuff that people were interested in that was out of the realms of the normal you know confines of politics as it were um that you don't get those opportunities very often. And, and the worst sort of Twitter account for politicians, the one that's been run by yeah. a committee of advisors, isn't it? Yeah, what are you looking at me for? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but no, we had, the, I mean, so Ed Miliband, who I work with, is a good example of this. So when Ed was leader, we used to agonise about 140 characters when it would, and it would come out after 20 20 minutes, half an hour of consultation. Great to be here with the Arbroath Salmon Stuffer Society on their, you know, centenary dinner. And it would be completely anodyne, but it would have taken a huge amount of sweat. And then since he's not been leader, Ed's been become really good at just being himself on Twitter. And I think one of the one of the issues about this is, I mean, he's authentic. He says what he thinks. Now, the problem is, once you go back into a role where you've got to be disciplined, as you say, is that going to hurt you? I think we're going through a phase on that at the moment where in the first phase, yeah, of course it is, because people like you, Matt, will say, aha, you said in 2014, Brexit's this and all that. Exactly. Um, I blame, Why don't we go through your Twitter feed? I blame, yeah, we should do that. We should turn the table. <laughs> That's a good idea. Unless you have one day a can year. We, when can we get him reading out embarrassing tweets about himself or something? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I wonder, that didn't want to happen to me because I wrote a story. I wrote a story about a civil servant who was caught up with posting loads of things on Twitter, and people got very cross about it and uh, went through my Twitter account because they'd been tweeting a lot about being drunk at work. Yeah. In the and uh, people got very cross about it and set up a parody account which just tweeted <laughs> things that I'd tweeted about drinking wine. Exactly. I think you've made it, effectively. I think it must have been you've made yeah, it. Exactly. Made it if you've That's got a badge a of honour. When it, it says surely? not real, Matt Jewell, yeah. you, know, you know you've made it. Well, several MPs but... uh, follow that one and not, not me. <laughs> but I wonder whether a couple of years down the line, or maybe a bit, bit longer than that, but whether people who've had a history on Twitter and social media of having positions on things in their authentic phase, you go back into cabinet to do a real job, whether they'll just have to say, you know what, I disagree with the Prime Minister on this. Maybe, maybe these fictions about politics that, you know, everyone agrees on everything in a cabinet, maybe that's the thing that we'll have to crack after a while because no one really believes that somebody passionately believes something, joining a cabinet that believes something different is changing their mind by joining the cabinet. And I just think that the conventions are going to have to kind of adapt to this world now. Actually, an explanation which says, I think I can bring something to it. I'm very passionate about exactly. my brief and I just happen to disagree that's a sort of I don't lead on this issue yeah. X does not me of course we, you you haven't mentioned one of my favourite politicians Twitter gaps, which was Ed Ball's tribute oh, moving tribute to Bob Holness no not oh, Ed Ball's Ed, Ed Miliband. Miliband. Oh. we'll come yeah. on to Ed Ball's day in a minute but Ed Miliband's moving tribute to Bob Holness yes yes hashtag blackbusters exactly I think it was it was it was uh, it was unfortunate although it, it did divide the office into those people who basically wanted to jump out the window and people who were on the floor convulsed in laughter uh, which I, were you I, I couldn't possibly relate although I was on the floor with were laughter you laughing out the window <laughs> but it was it was, a, it was it was one of those periods when everything had gone wrong for a few days and it was just the Sort of the you know the icing on the cake of all that really, but um, yeah, that wasn't authentic. <laughs> and there was also Ed Balls Day where he tweeted his name, uh, his own name, on the twenty eighth of April, uh, twenty eleven, and now it's a thing. And you know he's. But, and, and to be fair, I think one of the greatest things about Ed Balls was actually how he embraced it. Yeah. yeah. Because you know a lot of people can get quite grumpy about this sort of stuff, and the first year I don't think he was quite sure what to do, but then he just kind of went with it, and, and it's become a thing. And I think it, yeah, it's yeah. you know there is we now have a day for Ed Balls. You know that's that's. <laughs> Pretty good going. Yeah, 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 Do the yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, just before we move on, James, your former colleagues in the Lib Dem press yes. office have sort of they've made an art of the sort of sassy 
Twitter yeah, response yeah. taking on their... Pretty much ever since I left, they've... They've, they've, they've got they've, a sense of humour. Yeah, they have got a sense of humour. Um, yes. But they, you were the agonising <laughs> yeah. uh, camp. I was, I was always guilty of, uh, of making sure that, that, you know, being part of the committee and working out exactly uh, what we were doing, what we were saying. And then the moment that you actually get, you know, a bit of fun and you realise that people react well to it, um, then it can do... You can have a real good time and people respond very well to it. Even people who are your opponents can enjoy a little bit of, of banter on that. Yeah, and on it, it, actually seeing some of the yeah. uh, conversations between the Lib Dem press office and the Labour press office, yeah. where both sides are sort of trying to uh, treat it with the same sort of degree of um, humour is uh, really good. One of my favourites of the Lib Dem ones was after George Osborne, I think in his last budget, talked about abolishing the Lib Dems. And the Lib Dem press office tweeted back saying, well, given the, his record on all his other targets, we're not too worried about that. And I thought it was really good. I, I, he also and blocked really, us at that point. And then, and then, and then, <laughs> then George Osborne blocked the Lib Dem. One of my, my favourites is when Jeremy Hunt was, Jim Nochty called him an unfortunate word that rhymed with Hunt on radio. And Tristram Hunt, the next, that morning, just tweeted one word, few. <laughs> <laughs> you see, and it all goes back to authenticity. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for in part one of this Spin Doctors special. Coming up in part two, how to make sure your boss survives a leadership challenge, plus the worst photo opportunities our guests have been involved in. What was going through your mind when you thought, let's get Nick Clegg, de- at that point, Deputy Prime yes, Minister, was. running for um, re-election, to get him to walk through the streets of... <laughs> Gravesend. Gravesend. Yeah. High-fiving, yes. dancing girls. Yeah. yeah. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, where we'd love it if you left us a review. And you can sign up to my morning email, rounding up the day's political news and gossip at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box but for now from Stuart Wood Joe Tanner James Holt and me Matt Chorley it's goodbye thank you for downloading to discover more head to thetimes.co.uk this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by Luton Rising owners of London Luton Airport the UK's most socially impactful airport Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.